0: Hello and welcome to On Farm. It's Anna here with you this week. This is an episode all about conservation. We're talking about the conservation of land, of flora and fauna all set in the context of speaking to two people who were both winners in the Scottish Land and Estates Helping It Happen Awards last year. We're talking about Golden Eagles, we're talking about Peatland restoration and it's a really a great chat. Um, I have learned something um, from speaking to to the two people that you're about to hear from and I hope that you do as well but but more than that I hope that you enjoy it. But first a short word from Sarah-Jane Lang. Scottish Land and Estates Helping It Happen Awards have been running for for seven years and the campaign has been running for a little bit longer and they still provide such an excellent opportunity for businesses and projects, organisations and individuals to highlight the the really vital contribution that they're making to the life of, of rural Scotland. And it's not just about the awards, it is about raising awareness of the the contribution that, that rural businesses make to the environment, to communities, creating employment, creating opportunities for other. So it, it's a really excellent opportunity to celebrate, but also just to, to raise awareness of, of the realities of what's happening in, in rural Scotland many thanks there to SLE Chief Executive Sarah-Jane Lang. If you're looking to enter the Scottish Land and Estates Helping It Happen Awards 2023 they actually close today so if you're listening to this podcast on the day of broadcast you can dash onto the Scottish Land and Estates website and enter but even if that's not your bag this is a great episode just to learn more about what's going on in rural Scotland.
1: Hello, my name is Freddie Ingleby. I'm the Managing Director of Caledonian Climate, Scotland's only private, independent peatland restoration consultant.
2: So My name is Rick Taylor. I'm one of the community outreach officers for the South of Scotland Golden Eagle Project, a translocation project, which aims to boost the the very small and isolated population of golden eagles in the South of Scotland. Uh, We've been going for the last five and a bit years. And we have substantially increased the the very small population down here. There were only a handful of birds. There were only three breeding pairs in the south of Scotland, and now we're, we're pushing 40 birds. Now, it's been a very interesting project to be a part of, and it's a, a touch wood up to now. It's been it's been very successful. It's a team of five people. And yeah, it's it's been a real pleasure to be a part of it.
0: That is a huge increase in my book. Um, did, did you have goals when you started of, of where you wanted to get to, or was it really just kind of a let's do, do the best we can?
2: Um, I mean, we, we, we were aiming to translocate about 50 birds over the five-year period. Obviously, all of this is done under very strict licensing but we've now reached a point where there are now more golden eagles in the south of scotland than there have been for the last 300 years so we're quite quite pleased with that and uh, and you know we're getting a lot of support from the local communities the landowners as well which has been a massive massive part of uh, what we've been doing so we're really looking forward to seeing the birds start to settle and breed now Potentially in the next few years. So it's exciting times over here. There's been a lot of enthusiasm across the board for the return of these magnificent birds to the south, which is, you know, the, a part of their ancestral range. Watching them disappear from Wales and England over time, you know, it was getting to the point where they could have potentially disappeared from the south of Scotland, which would have been a, a huge shame. And because the population was so small, they couldn't really restore themselves. So what we did was bring birds down from the north. Uh, from the healthy population in the north there's now around about 500-550 pairs of golden eagles above the central belt who are doing very very well but there's not much sort of interaction between the two populations so by bringing birds down and releasing young birds into the mix it not only Helps to restore the population down here by boosting the numbers, but it also attracts wandering golden eagles from the north to, to stick around a little bit more when they come down here because they do have potential mates. You know, there's a lot. There's a lot of great territories, a lot of places that should hold eagles, but at the moment, when the eagle, young eagles especially come down during the winter, there's not really a reason to stay, so they just tend to pop up north. But now, with more birds in the area, we are seeing that change.
0: And so, in terms of habitats, um, obviously different. To, to the north of Scotland but it must be suiting them because uh, they, they're sticking around and they seem to be thriving.
2: Yeah I mean to be to be honest it was a bit of a surprise to me before I started with this project because I'd done a lot of work in the north of Scotland with birds of prey and I was kind of on the fence I thought is there enough you know space enough room enough suitable habitat like you say in the south of Scotland for these birds but when i went to see the sites where we were going to release them uh, and got to know the south of scotland a little bit it is a fantastic area for golden eagles it should it should have a healthy population of golden eagles and that's why we feel it's an ideal place to release these birds um as areas in the in the south of the get referred to as the mini highlands and knowing both areas now quite well. There are times when I'm driving maybe from Selkirk to Moffat or somewhere and you could you could be in the highlands, you know, it's, yeah. it is really suitable yeah. habitat for these birds and the fact that they're sticking around is, is testament to that.
0: There were, I know because I was involved, but there were a lot of entries into the conservate, the Scottish Land and Estates Conservation Award, but your project came out top. Now, if you were to be able to, to be objective about that, why, why do you think that is? What is it about this project that you think caught the imagination of the judges?
2: Well it's, it's actually quite easy for me to be objective about it because it wasn't really my role <laughs> to to do that. It was um a chap called Brian Burroughs, uh, who was the stakeholder engagement officer who really did most of the work, and obviously Dr. Kat Barlow, who, uh, who was the project manager between the the two of those people, I think um the work they did initially before the project began. So all the consultation work, all of the team, we liaise very closely with landowners, uh, gamekeepers, farmers, local communities, rural communities, anyone who's potentially going to be in contact or feel they may be affected by the, an increase in golden eagles in the area. And I'm happy to say, we've had resounding support across the board. You know, and it's been that's been integral to the success of the whole project. Not just you know winning a, an award for the conservation award. Without that support and without that you know, level of acceptance, we would have been really hard pushed to do what we've done. And I think as well, the fact that attitudes have changed so much in the last however many years, we've actually had landowners come to us and say oh can we have a pair of golden eagles you know which is huge uh, obviously we can't do that <laughs> but it's great that that's that willingness to welcome the birds back to the landscape but no it's it's good i think it's just the, the re- it's not just recognition for the project but it's recognition for the partnership work that has been undertaken so the award is it's lovely to have as a project but the award is also for all of the the landowners across not just in the south of scotland but across all of scotland who have donated birds maybe from their land you know the gamekeepers who have assisted in collections and then you know reported sightings of birds when they do arrive in the south and it's just been a real pleasure to see that level of support really across the board from everyone in the countryside down here
0: and yeah that's enormously positive as far as i'm concerned because you know let's be frank we have we have in the past seen some some slightly negative stories in the press about birds of prey and and how welcomed they are. And so this is, is hugely encouraging that, that everybody in the local community has been so supportive. And I think community is a kind of a key word here, which I'd quite like to, to explore as, as we carry on our chat. Um, but but coming to you next, Freddie, uh, I know that you've you've introduced yourself, but can you tell me a bit more about Caledonian climate and what you do and why you do it? What, you, what drives you to do it?
1: Yeah, thanks, Anna. Fascinating listening to Rick there as well. I'm overwhelmed by the fact that they've received such a positive response from a gamekeeping and landholding perspective. That's a real marker in the sand on the changing mindsets that we have at the moment, which is, I think, testament to everything in the landholding community, the narrative that gets spoken and everything around that. It's really interesting to hear that. So no, um, Caledonian climate is, we've been around for a couple of years now. We've just celebrated our second birthday. We are entirely focused on... Peter, Thank you. Um, (laughs) Get the cake out. Yes. Uh, We've been entirely focused on Peatland restoration and it's kind of what makes us unique along with our our independence and ability to work with all parties. We're entirely focused on increasing the speed and scale of Peatland restoration across Scotland because as a single entity, Peatlands are responsible for, um, in effect, they are the fifth largest carbon emitter in Scotland, which is quite staggering when you think about it they are as a result absolutely fundamental to meeting our climate change objectives sadly though we're missing our targets by huge numbers and um, the Scottish government have set out to restore 25,000 hectares of peatland on an annual basis this decade uh, and we're, at- we're achieving somewhere in the region of seven and a half to eight thousand hectares at the moment and that's from all delivery partners and all of that almost 100% of that is being entirely publicly funded today as well. So there's a substantial burden on the public purse. So we have kind of two key motivations here. One is increasing the speed and scale by delivering an enhanced capacity, but equally trying to unpick the challenges associated with bringing private finance into peatland restoration, which is one of the big challenges. Um, It both a 100% grant intervention ecosystem, but equally, in trying to make it work for private finance, which ultimately means it needs to generate a return. But for us and for my team, peatland restoration is—it's really a win-win-win. It's—it's it's great for the climate, it's great for biodiversity, and hopefully, it should be good for landholders and the general public and population as well. And we work to try and figure out how to benefit all of those different stakeholders as much as possible throughout the process.
0: Mm so my interpretation please correct me if I'm wrong then is that it must have been a challenge because people are used to funded projects and as you say now you're you're needing private finance to deliver this and the people who are, who are providing that finance are, are looking for a return so you know has that been a real challenge have you found it difficult to to find people who are engaged enough that they recognize that the, of the investment that's required it's a
1: really good question so to just kind of yeah, clarify the point on who, who we are, like we, we, we're the only people that only do peatlands. We're, we're part of a really like quite a large network now of other consultancies around the country that do peatland re- restoration and facilitate and support it. The difference that we have is that it, it's all we do from, from nine till five every day, uh, which means that we have a, a fortunate position of being able to understand a lot of the complexities that surround it and really dig into them, perhaps more so than others. Has it been challenging... I think there's a there's a there's a great will of support by both you know, government, by private businesses and individuals and by landholders, ir- irrespective of the ownership structure, so to speak, and the tenure arrangements on landholders holders to get peatland restoration done. The challenges come in how complicated the the whole process is. So there's there's public grant funding elements, there's a private finance piece trying to get a thin wedge into that door to get involved with it for all sorts of different reasons. But then equally, there's the new uh, Peatland Code, which has been around now for five years, validating projects, but has challenges itself to scale, to deliver the outcomes that it wants to deliver. And we found that the Peatland Code has probably put the biggest amount of questions into landholders' minds as to the cash flows associated with it, how to generate returns from it, the reliability of those cash flows, and also how to apportion all the risks and assurances and liabilities that come with buying, selling, producing a carbon product. And carbon is just a tiny piece of the jigsaw. It's the potential revenue generator today, but peatlands deliver extraordinary biodiversity benefits that will go right up the food chain to the raptor population that Rick was talking about earlier. But also in all of the other co-benefits that peatlands deliver, and they deliver them without the same conflict of land use that, say, afforestation could potentially lead to. So they're a fantastic solution to the climate biodiversity crises, and it's just unpicking that to make sure that they are done in a responsible and high integrity way.
0: That's really fascinating, actually. And I, I, often I sit and I do these podcasts, and I think, wow, this is this is a learning experience for me sitting here, and, and most of our listeners probably have a vague handle on peatland restoration but not all and and one of the nosiest and in, always intrigued people i know is my nine nearly 10 year old daughter i know that if she was sitting here with me now she would say okay freddie yes but what is peatland restoration and why is it so important so if you were speaking to a class of 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 10 year olds how would you answer that question
1: well, we do, we do, we do speak to schools, and, oh, uh, and, and we, we speak to the full, <laughs> the full kind of gamut of people because it is, a, it's a, even though it's widely public, like publicised that peatland restoration is going on in Scotland, the actual mechanics of it aren't very well understood. No, and so no. We, we, yeah, and so we speak to, we speak to educational establishments and right up through to like the main legal firms that that you that you'll know of um, to try and increase understanding. So fundamentally. It comes down to the three R's. So, reprofiling, revegetating, and ultimately trying to re wet the area. A healthy peatland habitat is a wet peatland habitat. And we have, a, we have an incredible resource, like an internationally significant resource of blanket bog in Scotland. And so, there's, there's a great international focus on Scotland as well as to what we're doing and how we're going about doing it. The reprofiling is where you, if, you, if you're if you familiar with climbing in the hills, you, you may come across the kind of black um, peat faces um, in the mountain habitats that you wander about. Those are called peat hags, um, and they can form into gullies, which may have a hag either side of them, um, and you are looking to reprofile the, um, the angle of those peat cliffs, so to speak, back to somewhere between 30 and 40 degrees, depending on who you speak to and where you are in the country. There is definitely an artistic element to some of it, underpinned by very robust science. The revegetation is covering up the bare peat. So the bare peat itself is going through an oxidative effect with the oxygen in the air and releasing carbon dioxide as a result. So revegetating the bare peat and covering it up to reduce the amount of exposed peat is, is another fundamental piece of um, peat and restoration. And then the next bit is trying to influence the level of the water table itself. So that's by buns, dams, and other interventions to slow the water flow off the hill and keep the water on the hill for longer. Um, some of it is, is, is very straightforward, um, and most of it is done by uh, diggers. There's a lot of handwork involved following the digger work um, in terms of yeah, proper fuel planting of sphagnum, geotextile, stabilization of bare peat to try and stop the, the runoff that's taking place. Or um, well, the erosion runoff that's taking place. But some of it, as I say, is you're actually just reversing human impact from the past. So artificial drains were pulled across the country in hundreds of thousands, if not millions of kilometres, um, in the kind of 40s and 50s to drain agricultural land for um, grazing, predominantly by sheep, and create food. The unintended consequences of that was that it led to the draining of peatland habitats, which then is now understood to be a very bad thing environmentally. So those artificial ditches are in effect being blocked and uh, the, road, the water stable being raised very effectively uh, simply by doing that reversal of uh, human impact historically.
0: Freddie, why, why is that so important? Why, why do we need to be doing that? Why does Scotland need to be investing time and energy and money into peatland restoration?
1: Fundamentally, it comes down to climate change and biodiversity loss. A degraded peatland is a very inhospitable landscape for colonising a biodiverse ecosystem. It's typically dry perennially, quite frequently heather-dominated and not able to support the invertebrate populations that would be commensurate with a healthy wetland system and also it is emitting substantial amounts of, of carbon. So to kind of give you some numbers on that, if you take a, a, a hectare, or let's let's put it into kind of layman's terms, if you take a kind of football pitch-sized area of peatland, typically that could be emitting anywhere between four and a half to five tonnes of carbon per, per football pitch per year. And post-restoration, you, you drop that down substantially. If you look at just a peat hag itself, and imagine a, a football pitch-sized peat hag, i.e. a giant area of bare peat. You can take that number and multiply it by 10 at least. So you're very quickly up to 50, 60 tonnes per hectare. So we're talking serious impact here. If we don't restore it, the carbon locked up in peatlands in Scotland is equivalent to 120 years' worth of Scotland's emissions as a, as a whole. And if we do nothing in time, those, those carbon emissions will be emitted into the atmosphere and have a negative effect. So we really must take the action and the speed that is needed to restore these habitats at scale.
0: And you mentioned, Rick, about, about communities and, and you said that actually you think that it's the way in which the, the South of Scotland Golden Eagle Project has engaged with the whole community that w- w- kind of contributed, contributed to it winning an award. Is there much that you need to do, Freddie, uh, in, in, you know, in your kind of day-to-day working life that, that is about kind of community engagement? I know you, you, you work very closely with landowners, but how important are the broader communities to what you're trying to achieve?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely integral on a lot of different levels. So fundamentally, there's a, there is a huge amount of consultation that takes place in advance of a restoration project taking, uh, taking place itself. Interestingly, a lot of that is to do with birds in general. Um, the impact of of, a, of an active IRE of a, a golden eagle close to a restoration project is significant, And we're very sensitive to that impact in terms of disturbance zones and times in which we can work around when they're nesting, etc. But even out with those periods, uh, there are very specific mitigations that we're um, aligning ourselves with to make sure that we're not disturbing the work that Rick and others are doing um, and just the general natural um, populations that that are around the country. But in terms of community work itself... Fundamentally, we're very keen and very focused on trying to figure out again how to do this right. And it's in the context of it being quite nascent. The Peatland Code is there to generate a, an independently issued carbon product, and that, in time, should be able to be sold to generate a revenue, which fundamentally has been designed to be the revenue that supports the project over the long term, making sure that the work that's done is permanent for up to a hundred years, which. In a peatland habitat, is a blink is the blink of an eye, really? But that's that's the maximum that the code will allow you to support. Now, today, the challenging conversations are around that financial element because the there, there are very few transactions taking place, and so the money in the system is is not very great. And so, communities are, are when it, when you talk about community engagement and benefit with peatlands, there's two sides to that coin. One is The benefits associated with potential natural flood mitigation, fire mitigation, water security, access to green spaces, local, hopefully rurally based jobs now and in the future. So that could be the digger drivers. It could be environmental consultants doing ecological clerk of works during restoration itself. And it could be the ongoing monitoring and reporting associated with a project. The other side of that coin is the financial piece and how the financial piece gets shared out. And I would say that today that is that is not um, very clearly understood. There's some really interesting projects going on right now about how best to do community benefit from peatland restoration where the revenue streams are not clear today and are not likely to be of the same magnitude as those that, say, come from hydro and wind developments where communities are frequently receiving, you know, hundreds of thousands if not millions of pounds
0: up yes, front. yeah.
1: Those Because those the streams income really stream heavy. is
0: so obvious, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And so getting that right is going to be really important. The code has some um, baseline principles for, that we need to meet for co- consultation. We've done a lot of community outreach, whether it's our, we did a Peatland Restoration roadshow through March across the country to try and bring the, the word into the communities more about what we do and what Peatland Restoration looks like and what its benefits bring. Then we do a lot of the kind of trade shows and things as well to try and, again, Really engage and understand where the challenges and friction points are, and make sure that we are engaging effectively.
0: And I suppose you know that you, as as two winners of of the Scottish Land and Estates Helping It Happen Awards, you know both of the projects and 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 um, and work that you're involved in obviously understood the benefit of raising awareness and so when it comes to the the general public Rick I might just come to you first when it comes to the general public do you think there's more that needs to be done in terms of raising awareness of what what needs what you know what's being done within your specific project or actually maybe you feel that that it's something that kind of should be done slightly more under the radar you know how do you feel about kind of what the public should and could understand about about the project.
2: Um, I mean, we we operate a very sort of open and and honest dialogue across the board, no matter who we're, we're speaking to about about the project and and how we're doing things and why we're doing things the way we are. But I think in terms of the community engagement with the the general public, we we've done a lot of work in that area i mean myself and my colleague philip monroe we the community engagement officers so that is our remit to go out and spread the word and um, we work across the south of scotland but a couple of examples of that that have been very successful is, is like freddie was saying earlier we do go into schools so we have an eagle schools program you know inspiring young people to to know about these birds to have some sort of feeling about these birds you know especially in the local communities where we've released the birds you know having that sense of ownership that that they're eagles you know kind of thing um to the point where in some of the schools we've managed to offer them the chance to adopt and name a golden eagle
0: so they love that
2: yeah yeah so i mean and then as part of that eagle schools it's usually a 10-week program you know it goes through all sorts of things about eagles, habitats, ecology. But we also bring in a falconry golden eagle, eagle to wow. to the classroom, you know, to give them a close yes. look at what they're learning about, and that that really does inspire that generation because at the end of the day, they're the ones that are going to go on to look after these birds long after we've exactly. we've packed up our boots. Yeah. We yeah. also do a lot of talks at like village halls or literally anywhere that will have us. We'll go along and you know tell people about the project. It's a nice project to talk about because obviously it's very visual you've got lovely pictures from Laurie Campbell one of Scotland's finest nature photographers he's uh he's provided a lot of photographs for us um but we also in 2020 I think or 2021 sorry uh, we had our first eagle festival
0: oh bro! I didn't know that that was amazing yeah
2: yeah so the town of Moffat became Scotland's very first and only eagle town Because we realise that there's a huge potential for rural communities to benefit from the ecotourism sort of aspect of having golden eagles back in the area. If you think about it, if you want to come up from London or England, Wales, and you want to see a golden eagle, you don't have to go all the way up to the Cairngomes or Mm -hmm. the Sky or Mull or anywhere anymore. You've got a very good chance now of seeing one just across the border. So, you know, geographically, it's a great location. Moffat is, you know, just across the border in, in the south of Scotland. It's very central. It's part of the mini highlands I alluded to earlier. So, yeah, we do a festival there each year. This will be the third year coming up uh, this September 22nd to the 24th. We've got Yola Williams speaking of that. We've had some a lot of support from, you know, some quite well-known conservationists who had Gordon yeah. Buchanan speaking for the, the last oh, two years. Yes. Yes. So it's been very well received, not just by, you know, kind of people – in the conservation world, but the local community, having that identity is an eagle town. You know, the local school gets involved. So that's been a really, really useful and very enthusiastically received sort of piece of community engagement. Um, And that spills out, you know, into the wider community. If you work with the children, they go home, talk to the, the parents, grandparents, you know, aunties and uncles, and with something like a festival, you know, you've got live music, you've got a pipe band, you've got talks from conservationists, you've got an enviro fair. You know, where conservation groups from all across uh, the south of Scotland come together and talk about their work. So, um, so it's a real mixed bag, but it also allows us to reach people who may be difficult to reach just in a conservation way.
0: Wow, that sounds amazing! 22nd of September, Moffitt. Is that 22nd of the.
2: Twenty fourth of September. Right,
0: yeah. Moffat's not a million miles away from me, so I'm going to put that in the diary and bring oh, the well, kids because I think they'd love that. <laughs> well,
2: there is a family fun day, so yeah, the kids are welcome too. <laughs>
0: Good, excellent. No, that, that I'm glad you told us about that because I think that's that's a brilliant way of you know spreading the word and getting people to engage. And um, now, Freddie, I know that you, you know you you don't perhaps have the visual, the same visual um, props. Um, that Rick has. But um, how, how do you find kind of wider public engagement and, and you know, getting people to be to be passionate about this and to understand the importance?
1: I think, I mean, this is absolutely the nub of the issue to scaling Peatland restoration. It comes down to several different factors. You know, we, we haven't got the silver bullet for it yet. Trees are easy to understand they grow people can you can see them you can physically get in and boot them and it's an easy concept to understand plant a tree it grows something's appearing there's biomass there that's probably taking up carbon it's having a good good impact peatlands are you know more challenging to make attractive to people they're fascinating and they are beautiful at, at a at a kind of micro scale, actually, there's been some really cool stuff done underwater around that the bog pools form. But even that, it's still quite remote and alien to people's daily lives. So we, to a certain extent, have to slightly rely on things like what Rick's involved in um, and the photography of the flora and fauna, um, and in particular the fauna that that, that live and make peatlands habitats their home, particularly um, the bird life that's around there, whether it's whether it's the apex predators, but also the, 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 the ground nesting birds that appear um through the the, the spring months in particular are, are are stunning. I mean, whether it's golden plovers, dunlins, um, various different divers, there's all sorts of exciting things that do come on and are beautiful and fascinating. Um and I think there's a challenge here with how we as a population value nature full stop. Um because green spaces are so they're so restorative. And I think that until we actually get out and in amongst the green spaces, it could be quite be quite difficult to kind of actually align yourself with that thinking and understanding how beneficial they can be. And when they're diverse and full of all the things that we've been talking about, to give you something to kind of go to it and the reason to go to it, they're that much better. So. Yeah, the understanding of it is 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 a tricky one um, to get people engaged and excited about restoring peat. I think there's been a lot of narrative around it over the last couple of years as a result of peatland action, and they push it hard. I think candidly, it's, it's being under it's being understood more and more. Um, I mentioned that we did this this roadshow in March, and so that was four venues across the whole of Scotland, and we engaged with over 200 people at these roadshow events. And we did one in Comrie, and we had just under 100 people turn up, which was I mean amazingly kind of exciting for us because
0: that's brilliant. We wondered yeah. if anyone
1: was going to show a very these big place, was,
0: Comrie.
1: <laughs> well, exactly. It was entirely talking about peatlands. Um, it was what peatland restoration is and the benefits it can have, and some some talk about herbivore impact as well, which is really topical in the island communities, particularly that of that of deer populations. Um, but we had the spread of everyone from there was Perth and Kinross Council through to land agents, landowners, the community trust were there. Um, it, was, it was a fascinating mix and it led to a really vibrant discussion afterwards. So I think there is appetite and there is understanding, but it's perhaps not at the broad consumer level. And I think that's when things get really exciting because, I mean, how often have you, you know, perhaps bought a train ticket and been prompted with the option of buying a tree as well, or, or going into a supermarket or um, St. Pancras station, for example, and seeing a similar type of arrangement? what we'd love to see is the same type of thing happening for peatlands across the board so that it's it's a it's a known and understood and actively engaged with way of having positive impact whilst continuing with a level of consumerism that people will find would find it very mm-hmm. difficult to walk away from full stop
0: yeah really good point actually really good point so do you feel that having won an award last year having won um, you won the Ivor Salvesen Award for combating climate change, and and do you feel that from a kind of awareness perspective, winning that has has been valuable to to what you're trying to achieve?
1: I mean, a- absolutely. From an SLE perspective, Scottish Lands and Estates ha- have been uh, supportive of us mm-hmm. since we began, and from a from a ground roots landholder engagement perspective, it's it's been really helpful and beneficial and it's great to have that platform and that image through the SLE um, magazine and for the awards itself and I think the scale that we're trying to deliver the broader our reach can be the better and an award like this has been really helpful to help expose that the challenge now is is getting that same reach out with the population of landholders and in terms to say that the general population
0: yes Yes. I'm really glad we had the two of you on together because it's made me understand and hopefully more people understand, you know, the total interaction. You know, we, we kind of, if we're forced to think about it, we we, we, th- we kind of do have an appreciation. But it's really made me think about the interaction between conservation on a ground level and how that impacts upon flora and fauna and, and the habitats of, of, of birds like the golden eagle and, and understanding the, you know, the total integration of, of those two things. Um, before we kind of start to, to sign off, is there anything else that, that perhaps we haven't discussed about your projects or your work or even any questions that you have for each other that, that you'd like to cover before, before we go?
2: I mean, I guess for us, just to say a huge thank you for all the support we've received across the board from the the stakeholders, you know, the the Gamekeepers, the farmers, the local communities, Um, and also just a a huge thank you to the Scottish Raptor Study Group, who um, a group of raptor specialists, um, all volunteers who helped to monitor the the, the populations of birds and, and find a lot of the nests alongside the, the keepers and the landowners which are viable for collection so and i think it's it's just good to acknowledge the the fact that this partnership work is now starting to address an area that or bridge a gap if you will between two countryside sort of users who didn't always get on so are now sitting around the same table so we've got the landowners the gamekeepers the raptor workers you know they sort of all Pulling together to make this project the success it's been, so I think that's a really important point to make. That you know that that has happened, and that is real testament to, as Freddie said, that you know the changing attitudes a little bit, but also, you know, without that, we this project would not have been as successful as it was. So just a huge thank you from us to to all of those people I mentioned.
0: Wow, that's lovely, Rick, and absolutely appropriate to to do that. I think, yeah, F- Freddie, if you've got anything else that uh, that you'd like to add,
1: I think there's a there's a very passionate group of people across the country now working on projects such as the eagle reintroduction and relocation, translocation, peatland restoration, responsible afforestation, seagrass rewilding, etc. The vast majority of people involved in this are doing it for the right reasons and are trying to have the biggest possible impact that they can have on candidly, our rural landscapes to make them more resilient for you know the threats that are, are going to be facing it that are only too evident right now as we see flash flooding and wildfires and water scarcity across the whole country significant in more and more places as every week goes by. I mean, Loch Marie has been under significant water scarcity for, for almost, I think maybe just over a month now, which is slightly terrifying when you put it into context. And I think the point I want to make is just that you know, there is a there is a growing community of people ha- actually taking action and that's what's needed. There needs to be more people taking action and less rhetoric and less commentary around, let's do more and we need to do more. And actually people need to start thinking, okay, if I'd started doing this a couple of years ago, it might've been seen as a bit of a, a risk to perhaps, you know, my business or my perceived norms or anything like that. whereas. Now, there's there's some proven models out there that are working, the benefits are being delivered, and perhaps I should dip my toe in the water and get moving on it. And I urge everyone to you know, pick up the phone to people like ourselves, to Peatland Action, um, which is the, kind of the, the governmental body that um, arbitrate all of the Peatland restoration, so to speak, uh, the Kangaroo National Park, North Colombo and National Park. There's plenty of organisations out there that would happily have a conversation with those that are interested to try and spark action and get that moving, because frankly, if we don't start actually moving and scaling now, whichever conservation or biodiversity proven project you're talking about, it, it will be it will be too late.
0: Mm-hmm. The clock is not going to stop ticking, so we need yeah, to, yeah. to yeah move move fast. Mm-hmm. And we're at eleven fifty nine on that clock at the moment. I think things are shifting, maybe probably not as fast as as you would like them to, but hopefully, all of the combined effort and a little bit extra, um, you know, from the likes of us, from other media to to try and spread the word. So final, final question before I go, gentlemen, what would you say to to a project, a a, a business and a state, um, considering entering the awards, but perhaps sitting on the fence at the moment?
2: I think, go for it I'm fairly confident that we didn't really expect to win <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't think anybody really does with these things but yeah it was a very very pleasant surprise and and you know just that raise that raising profile you know kind of getting the word out to groups that may have not have heard about you before um, and then you know you get a lot of um, like invitations to speak from the back of these sort of things so you reach people that you mm. may not have not have spoken to before um, so yeah, just just go for it. If you know, if you, you're working hard, you're doing something really worthwhile. Then put your toss your hat into the ring and and, and best of luck to you.
0: Yeah, we we all deserve a pat on the back sometimes yeah. if you have done something worthwhile. And that's, um, Freddie. What what would you say uh, to this? The same question.
1: Yeah, I would say get involved. There's there's very little downside, if any. And um, we've got nothing to lose. Um I think the beauty of the SLE awards is. There is a very vibrant community that you're engaging with in the SLE membership. They are they are very accessible awards as well. There's a nice range of awards that you could put your put your name to. And the application process is fairly simple as well. So it's not a it's not particularly onerous to do that. And I think the judging is fair and diligent. And yeah, the exposure that you get as a result of it is is, is great, whether it's podcasts like this or throughout the year within their conferencing structure and the shows that they go to. They're a great organisation to, to work alongside with and, yeah, I'd say get involved.
0: And I appreciate your time and also your insights as well. And I have definitely learned something. So thank you very much indeed.
2: You're very welcome. Right. Thank you. <laughs> pleasure.
0: So thank you again to Rick and to Freddie. Freddie's wife is is imminently due a baby, so we were actually lucky to catch him for the podcast. Uh, Good luck to Freddie and family. So, yeah, that's it for this week. Monty will be back next week sharing an episode that we created at the Royal Highland Show. That's definitely one not to be missed. So come back next week and uh, hear Monty.